turn with me in your Bibles then to Romans chapter 1. John and I were at the uh, prison last night, and he never asked me this. I don't, I don't know that he ever has. He said, what are you going to preach on tomorrow night? And I said, the book of Romans. And he looked at me, and I said, no, only the eight, first eight chapters. Don't laugh. Don't laugh. <laughs> we will hit something in all eight chapters tonight, I promise. But I want to talk tonight from the Word of God about power and specifically about the power of God. It's referred to quite a few times by Paul. We all understand and we all know that it's something that we as human beings, as Christians, need in our lives. There's a lot of things that we can add to our lives as Christians that do not add God's power to it. There's a lot of things we can do in our lives that actually can diminish God's power in our life. But we need His power. We, we need the power of God to get us through, to get us to the end. There isn't a soul in this room is going to make it on your own. I think we know that. If you think you're going to make it from here on out, uh, you really need to listen. Because there's something about an attitude that thinks they can make it that causes problems in people's lives. But Paul speaks of power. In his defense in the book of Acts in chapter 26, you don't have to turn there. Remember, he's making his defense to King Agrippa, and he's giving him his testimony, basically. And he's telling him that Jesus told him on that road to Damascus that he was going to send him to the Gentiles and to the Jewish people. And he was going to send them him there to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. It's implied there that those he's talking to are under the power of Satan. And it was necessary for him to go and preach to these people so that through his preaching, they would be delivered from the power of Satan, our adversary. First Corinthians, we all know, when he was speaking to the Corinthians, and he talked about how his preaching came forth, how he, how he preached and how he spoke. And he says he didn't come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. For I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but they were in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God." We all want our faith in the power of God, don't we? That's where our faith needs to be. It really does. I mean, he's not going there trying to, by, by interesting arguments that men would maybe put together. His whole concern was that he would come and speak, and it would be in demonstration and in power by the Spirit, that their faith 
wouldn't just hear what he had to say, but they would see and they would understand that what he's saying was the truth and that their faith would rest and be confident in God's power. We, we all know in Ephesians 6.10, you know, that chapter, the armor of God, but he starts out and he says, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. I don't know about you, but there's been far too many days in my Christian life when I walked in my own power. I know I have. That always turns out to be a disaster, and you know it too. Because sometimes we don't always understand or have a knowledge of what we need to do in situations, how God's power can work in various situations. We may know words about it, but there's something about knowing. And that's what the prayer is in Ephesians 1, isn't it? That they would have their, their eyes or their understanding open, that they may what? Know something. You have to know something. You have to be very knowledgeable in your heart to have faith. Because it's with the heart that man believes, right? It doesn't say with your head you believe. All of us in this room that have faith have it from our heart. There's something about seeing. And Brother Tom alluded to it. I don't know if it was last week or what. But he said something in the idea of we need to see things with our heart. We need to understand and have a knowledge of something before we're really going to be able to use our faith. You have to see it. We have to see those things that are unseen as though they are real before faith will be released for that. The whole Hebrews chapter 11 is people who were told something, but they saw it. I believe they saw it in their heart. Noah was moved because what did he see? I mean, he saw what was coming. He somehow in his heart, he saw. All these men saw something. And it caused them to live a life of faith. So when we talk about power, we all know what the book of Acts is about. The day of Pentecost came. Jesus said what? You tarry for me or tarry in in Jerusalem and you wait and I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit and he's going to empower you. This is God's doing, isn't it? It's always God's doing when we accomplish something through him. There's, there's, there's multitudes of Christians and good people in churches and they're all out there trying to do something for God. And they so desperately are as sincere as they can be and I don't, I don't judge their hearts. I'm just, you just know that they're going about trying to do the right thing. They're, they're, they're putting out a lot of human effort, a lot of man's ideas about what God wants them to do. And for the most part, it's not very successful, is it? It becomes programs and it becomes man's wisdom and it becomes philosophy and it becomes church. But in Romans chapter 1, if you're there, Paul is speaking to, obviously he wrote to the Romans. He, he didn't go there yet, but he's writing to the Romans. He wanted to visit them. And he's speaking to those who are in Rome, but he calls them saints in verse 7. So we know they're saints. It also says that 
in verse 8 that I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Would you say they had a testimony already? Wouldn't it be nice if our faith here in Shelby County was spoken of throughout the whole world? Wow. What kind of people is he writing to? Because when he gets to our text tonight in Romans 1 and 16, he came to preach the gospel, didn't he? That's what his desire was, was to preach the gospel. Everywhere he went, preach the gospel. That's what we hear in the music. I listen to the songs and I go, that's the gospel. Brother Tom preaches, that's the gospel. John preaches, it's the gospel. It's the gospel. But in verse 16, what does Paul say? He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it, the gospel, is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So Paul here has a desire to preach the gospel because he understands something about the preached word and the preaching of the gospel. He understands that in the gospel, it is the power of God. Now, I don't know what you think about the gospel. You, you may or may not have a very narrow idea of what the gospel is. But in this one phrase, in this one statement that Paul's making, many think that, here you go, this is the theme of the entire letter. Here it is. I'm preaching the God. Paul's saying, I'm preaching the gospel because I know that it's the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. This is why I am not ashamed to preach it. Can you imagine being in those days? I mean, I just try to put my, I mean, it's almost impossible to put yourself back 2,000 years and imagine what it was like to be in a Jewish surrounding or even a Greek Surrounding, we'd probably be closer to that with all our grand philosophies and smartness that we've come to think we have. But to go and to preach the gospel and say, here's the gospel. This Nazarene, this, this man from Galilee who did a little, you know, for three years, went around and traveled and he had some people following him and he did a lot of things. But you know what? At the end, he was crucified and he died. But he rose again. Now, in a community of smart people, that doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. That just is foolishness, isn't it, to smart people. And to the Jews, it's a stumbling block, isn't it? But Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for he knew something. He knew that the gospel was the power of God onto, or to salvation or unto salvation. So as he's preaching to the saints in Rome... He so much wants to impart to them the gospel. Why? He wants the power of God to be that which gets them all the way to the end. Now, I don't know what you think. I mean, we all know what the go, go, the word gospel. We Everybody in this room probably knows what the word gospel means, right? Good news, glad tidings. 
It, it means, it means somebody witnessed to you and gave you the four steps of how to get saved and you said that was the gospel. And then once you got saved, that was all you needed the gospel for. Right? Because once you're saved, we don't need the gospel anymore. Now what we need is, is, is more stuff. But really what we're talking about, this more stuff is the gospel. The gospel entails all the promises about God's redemptive purposes from the beginning all the way to the end. It's not just the gospel of your sins are forgiven as good and as great and as necessary as that is, but that's not the end of the gospel. The gospel is the good news about how God is going to restore everything back under his rule. It's the gospel, it's called the gospel of the kingdom in places. It's called the gospel of grace. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of God, the gospel of your salvation, the gospel of peace. And in Roman, uh, Revelation 14, 6, it's called the everlasting gospel. I want to hear the gospel. I don't care about any of man's stuff. I want to hear the gospel. I do. I think that's why I moved here. I'm pretty sure it had very little to do with you people. <laughs> no offense. I want to hear the gospel. Because if you live in an area of the country or you have gone to church your whole life and you realize that it, the phrase we had was that the churches in our area were an inch deep and a mile wide. Big deal. You know, we all get out and make some splashes, but it, it, there's no depth. No depth. Because the gospel was reduced to referring to movie references and songs from the 60s and political, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Well, you may not. And you don't need to know. We need the gospel. We need the gospel. The gospel encompasses the promises of the Old and the New Testament. This is a quote from someone. He's defining what the gospel for him, I mean, this is his de definition of the gospel, but in its simplest form, the gospel is God's reconciling work in Christ. That through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, God is making all things new, both personally for those who repent and believe, and cosmically as he redeems creation from its subjection to futility. Now, last time I preached, I talked about being in Christ and a new creation. That's what, that, that's what we're talking about. The gospel. This, this restoration of everything in which you and I as new creations are part of that. Maybe what we think is a small part, but you haven't been called without a purpose. There isn't a soul in this room that hasn't been called or elect for a purpose in his purposes. We all have a purpose. And it's all part of that restoration. So, if the gospel is the good news, it's the promise of things we do not yet see. Can we say that? There's a lot of things in this Christian life you don't see, but you believe, isn't there? There's a lot of things. We believe in forgiveness of sins. Do you? Have you seen your sins forgiven? But you believe it. You believe your sins are forgiven. You believe you're justified. 
You believe there's a heaven. You believe in Jesus, although you've never seen him. You believe God has a kingdom. You believe there's a place being prepared for you. You believe in glory. You believe in the resurrection of the dead. Do you? None of that you've ever seen. You do you believe you believe that? You believe that. That's good because if I was going to define or illustrate the gospel, all those things that are in the unseen realm are are we could say in heaven. I'm not saying they're in heaven. I mean things are around us. Angels are here now. The spirit of Christ is here. Jesus is with us. We all don't see him. But all those things exist in an unseen realm. But let's just say a rope, a rope extends out of all those unseen things, and we call that the gospel. Those of us in here who understood what we were like and our need for forgiveness, for redemption, what did we do with that rope? We grabbed a hold of that because the gospel is the preaching of all of that, isn't it? That's what the gospel is. We're supposed to be here preaching things that aren't necessarily seen, but we believe. Now, if your heart sees that along with people who teach it, you're supposed to grab a hold of that rope. You're supposed to, by faith, adhere yourself to what you're hearing, what you believe. The only problem is all those grand and glorious things in the unseen realm aren't here in this world. So a lot of people start out clinging desperately to that rope. And then what happens over time for some? They start looking over here or times get hard and, you know, they drop one hand and pretty soon they're just kind of holding on with one hand. What happens when you let go of the gospel? What happens when you let go of those things that you've been taught though you've never seen? That's not a good place, is it? You've got to be those who hold on to that rope. But the gospel needs to be preached all the time. All these things need to be preached. So Paul goes on, he says there, he says it is the gospel, or for the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Now that word power, whether it means anything or not, is dunamis. I'm not going to, well, there's the dynamite stick under the podium, but we all know what that is, right? The power of God. When we talk about dynamite, we're thinking about something that is explosive. It's powerful. I don't think anybody in this room would hold a stick of dynamite, light the fuse and hold onto it and go, no big deal, because you're going to lose your life. That's how powerful this power is. It's dunamis. The gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And one other definition, if you haven't heard heard it, salvation is soteria in the Greek. And it means to deliver. It means to rescue. It means to keep safe. It means to heal. It means to forgive sin. It's all these things are included in this salvation that we're looking for. And it's the power of God in the gospel. Now, the gospel, you're going, did I just walk into a Baptist church because this guy's preaching gospel? 
He's preaching salvation. But you know what? I like to hear it once in a while. I like to hear, you know, I, I, I read somewhere sometime some guy was telling himself and he recommended it to others. Every once in a while, preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself. Don't just go through life, you know, thinking you're, you're, you know, things are working out or whatever. No, preach the gospel to yourself once in a while. Remind yourself of why you're here. Why you believe what you do. What's been done for you. I don't see any problem with that. I do that every so often now. It's just, it's good to ponder these things. So in verse 17, Paul goes on to say, after he says that he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. In verse 17, he says, For in it, meaning the gospel, the love of God is revealed. Nobody's going to object to me on that, are they? I hope so. I hope you are, because your translation doesn't say that, does it? It's not the love of God that's revealed in the gospel, is it here? It's not the love of God that's revealed. It's what? His righteousness. We serve a righteous, just, holy God. Are you glad for that? Or would you want somebody who just goes, eh, whatever? We don't serve that kind of God. But that would be wrong to say that the gospel, in the gospel, the love of God is revealed, even though we know that God demonstrated His love by giving His Son. But that's how His righteousness was satisfied. That's what makes Him righteous when it comes to dealing with sin. The word righteousness, and or the, just the, the root of the word for righteousness or just or justification is, you, if you just do a count, I'm sure some, most of you have a computer program, you do a count on just where that word's used in Romans more than anywhere else, it's almost 60 times. Other places it's four or five times. Romans, righteousness is in there a lot. Now, righteousness defined, this is how Mr. Vine's would define righteousness. Because we're talking about now, we're talking about what? What has been revealed about God? It's the righteousness of God. So Mr. Vine says this, righteousness is the character of quality of being right or just. It is used to denote an attribute of God, as in Romans 3, 5, the context of which shows that the righteousness of God means essentially the same as his faithfulness or truthfulness, that which is consistent with his own nature and promises. Romans 3, 25 and 26 speaks of his righteousness as exhibited in the death of Christ, which is sufficient to show men that God is neither indifferent to sin nor regards it lightly. On the contrary, it demonstrates that quality of holiness in him which must find expression in his condemnation of sin so although we see god's love demonstrated by the giving of his son the giving of his son was to satisfy his justice and that's what the book of romans is explaining we all know it if you've ever read it once you kind of know you know, I started doing this study probably, I started thinking about this probably two weeks ago. And the other day I heard somebody say that he started a series um, teaching Romans in his church. 
And he got into it and he said, you know what? I don't think anyone should delve into a study in Romans unless you've been preaching for 30 years. Now, I wish I would have heard that two weeks ago. (laughs) Because I'll tell you what, just more than a cursory reading of Romans, it is rich. There is so much more in there than probably we could ever dig out. But I wish I would have heard that two weeks ago. And maybe you will too after we're done in three hours. No, it won't be that long. I I promise. But his righteousness in the gospel is revealed. In other words, what was done, what is preached in the gospel, is then the revelation of what God did to reveal his right ways. It demonstrates his love. But what we see in it is the revelation of his rightness, of his justice, of how he will deal with the human race, all of mankind. He says further on that this this verse uh, 17, he says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from what? Faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, I'm not going to say I know more than some people I've read, but, you know, they all don't know what that phrase means, faith to faith. You know, whatever. To me, it's a continuation of your faith. It has to be. You don't get to have faith 30 years ago, right? And then that's it. Your, your life has to demonstrate a continuous trust in what God has provided for us. You have to have faith in the gospel. You have to have faith in those things that are unseen. So we continue in our faith. And we think in terms, when we think in terms, and in this context, when it says the just shall live by faith, he goes on in verse 18. Now, the righteousness of God is revealed in 17, correct? It says that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. In verse 18, we see something else that's revealed. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteous men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So the gospel is what reveals his right ways, his righteousness. But to the unrighteous, sinful world of which we live among and were at one time a part of, what's revealed against them? The wrath of God. So right there, you know, if you want to speak to somebody in the world and witness to him, you tell them, listen, as long as you are not a believer or obedient to the gospel, which is the only way to be saved from his wrath, you're under his wrath. The whole world is under his wrath. This is why no other religion has a way out. Because their God didn't provide them a way out. They only make up rules and laws. And traditions, thinking that they are somehow going to merit their way into heaven. That somehow their works will merit something with God. I hope we don't believe that. 
In fact, I know we better not. Because I don't think there's a soul in this room, the day you got saved, brought anything to God and said, you know, I want to get saved, but I'm also bringing something else you need. I hope you came to God totally empty of self and bankrupt. Or I'm not sure you got saved. I don't know your heart, but I'm just saying. You don't come with half a heart and go, I'm still kind of good, but I, I just need to add this to my life. We don't do that. We come to God as broken people that are well aware of our unrighteousness and how we are totally bankrupt before Him. Because our righteousness is as filthy rags. His is so much higher than we could ever attain to with any amount of good works. You have to come to Him bankrupt. Or you're not receiving a Savior. You don't need one, do you? All you need is more good works. So if if we were to come to Him the day... God deals with us, and we hear the good news. And we understand it. You know what? It's the good news of Jesus Christ that is the only way that I can make it to heaven. This is the only way that I can be restored to God, my Father. We didn't bring anything to merit that day one, did we? The problem is... And you can argue with me if you want. But I think the longer people sometimes in Christian circles or in Christianity in general, they begin to start judging themselves by others or by themselves. And they begin to think that they need to pray more, fast more, read more, study more, witness more, give more. All these things that are all good, right? We have no problem with that. But if even the slightest inkling enters our mind that says that by doing these things, I merit something from God, he'll have no part of it. Because you and I can never bring anything greater that would ever eclipse what Jesus Christ has done. God the Father loved His Son. Did He not love His Son? And yet, He went to the cross. He bore it all. So that what? We could be justified. And we don't bring nothing to that, do we? To me, if I gave my only Son, and then you said, well, I got a little something I'm meriting also. I'm going to merit something also alongside of it. I'm not, I wouldn't have no part of it. I just gave up my son for you. Don't you dare come to me with any of your ideas of meriting something greater than what my beloved son did. When you start seeing the contrast between what Jesus did in his righteousness and what God did to bring righteousness to us, we can't even think about bringing anything to him, can we? We do lots of good things and we should. It should be an outworking of that. You know, two men, Luke 18, two men went into the temple. Right? We've all heard it. Two men went into the temple, a Pharisee and a tax collector, right? And the Pharisee went in and said, 
Lord, I'm glad I'm not like all these other men, adulterers, whatever, and even like this tax collector over here. Because you know what? I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. And I'm in here praying. What do you think he's doing? He wants to merit something from God, doesn't he? He wants to bring his own righteousness. And this tax collector does what? I'm not even... I can't even lift my eyes. I can't even lift my eyes. He had no sense about him of any kind of personal righteousness. His humanity didn't have anything to bring before a holy, righteous God. And then we all know what Matthew 7 says, right? There's going to be many that come to him and say, Lord, Lord, and not enter. And they're going to say, well, wait a minute. Here's what I did. I cast out demons in your name. I healed the sick in your name. I did many wonders in your name. Sounds to me like somebody's trying to merit their way into heaven. They're trying to bring their own way in outside of what God's Son has already done. And he's going to say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. So in verse 18... He does say that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So from this point on through chapter 3, I'm not going to, I'm trying to brief this because we're not going to, I just want to cover a few things. But in chapters, the end of this and chapter 2 and 3, if you were to read through them, you're going to see what I don't consider to be really good news yet because it's going to lay it out pretty harshly isn't it paul's not going to pull punches guess what there isn't a soul going to make it before god on their own righteousness there is no way there's absolutely zero chance that anyone who is ever born jew gentile or otherwise will ever be able to bring anything before god it doesn't even matter if you kept the law right to the letter you have no righteousness before him It doesn't matter. But in verses 22 of chapter 1, he says, this is the world, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who changed, exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature or themselves rather than the Creator who is blessed forever and ever. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. Even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burn in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, 
murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventor of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. That's the world. That sounds pretty unrighteous to me. I mean, is that a harsh description of you and I? You weren't none of that, right? You were probably born a Christian, right? And nobody in the room born a Christian. But you were part of this. And we live amongst it. If this isn't a description of the world we live in now, I don't know what is. But Paul's laying it out pretty heavy. And in verse, in chapter 2, he says, Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Inexcusable. And in verse 5 of chapter 2, it says, In accordance with the hardness and impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Do you believe with your heart in the unseen coming day of the righteous judgment of God? I mean, can you honestly say that that is something that you believe? Because we talk about faith in this church at least twice a week. I think that's how many meetings there are. But here's the thing. All these things that we're going to look at briefly in Romans all have to do with your faith. All these things have to do with what you believe from your heart that are still unseen. I mean, we, we talk about, you know, we want to be delivered. We want to be healed. We want to... Pro- those are all good things. It's all part of the gospel. But I'm afraid there's too many people in Christendom, and I'm not saying in here, they believe something with their mind. They never came to understand or maybe... They never, they, they started out right, but they never came to a realization of all these grand promises that we're going to see in Romans. Because those are all things that are unseen that we still need to take by faith. If you're justified by faith, then you've got to see that. Not just say, I believe I'm justified by faith, because you being justified by faith changes the way you live. It does. I think sometimes we, we take the gospel and we hear the salvation message and we, we get convicted, we repent, we're converted, and then we go about life trying to be religious maybe. And we're forgetting all these things that are so great for our lives or we expect them to just be, yeah, 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 I know that's there. I've read that. But, you know, if it happens, it happens. We don't say that about healing. And we don't say it about prosperity. We don't say it about deliverance, do we? Do we just sit around and go, well, I see it in there. And if, you know, if it happens, great, but otherwise I'm just going to live my life. But when there's so many promises that are in the gospel, which is God's power, we need to know what they are because that's His power. 
So chapter 3, the very end. He condemns us all. We know the scripture. Verse 9 says, what then? It's not the end, the middle. What then? Are we better than they? He's talking about the Jews. They had the law. They received the law from God. That holy thing. That perfect law from God. It wasn't a bad thing, was it? They received the law. So therefore, because they knew what was right and wrong, they're just going to make it. That's not what the book of Romans teaches. That's not what the scriptures teach. It's not those who have the law, but those who keep it. And that was not going to happen, was it? So he says, what are we, better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, if you're excluded from this, you can cover your ears. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb and their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Does God have a harsh sentence against mankind? Very harsh, isn't it? In God's eyes, that's what he sees. In our unrighteousness, that's all he sees. And anyone in another religion who's trying to merit their way to heaven, he doesn't see any of it. It doesn't merit anything because it has to come through his son. Anytime any of us in here even remotely try to merit something that doesn't come through his son is wrong. It's all through him. So our righteousness cannot be achieved by human effort. Now, when I think about this, we think about the gospel as the power of God to save people, to save his people. All through, if you, you know, just a, just a brief memory, go back through the Old Testament. Does God always, nearly always, I can think of, he always saved his people with power. It required power to deliver them, right? I mean, they didn't just walk out of Egypt. They didn't just float across the Red Sea, although that would have required something too. But all of these things require God's power to bring it about. To who? To those who believe. It's not that complicated, is it? So when we think about the power of God in the gospel to save, to deliver, to rescue us, we're really abandoning ourselves or casting ourselves before someone who is more powerful than the things which hold us, than the things which keep us under. Is that what we're doing when we hear the gospel? Are we looking to someone who is in greater power than that which holds you down? Because if the gospel preached isn't teaching that, and believe me, you can hear lots of people preaching there out in the world, and they're almost going to tell you, you don't have a chance to be well. You don't have a chance to be delivered. There's no power to, to, to 
prosper you. There's no power to, to, to heal you. And I think in those places, is there power to save those people then? I don't know if there is. I mean, it, it, are they preaching a message that doesn't even save people then? Is there no power in what they're saying? How, how can God save you from sin but not heal your body? I mean, that's, that's, we can't think like that. But we don't. But there's people who tend to think like that. And their messages are drowning in defeat. They have nothing to say. I don't, they're not even preaching the gospel then. So if you're not preaching the gospel, if you go somewhere to church where the gospel is not preached, how is the power of God ever going to be in your life? You'll never see it. And they never do. But let's say you go to a church where, where, you know, it, it appears that they are preaching the gospel and they're all excited and they're positive, And yet they don't see a lot of things happening. Could it be? And you shout me down if you want. I'm just telling you, this is some little inkling in, down inside of me that says, is there some way that Christian people can think that by doing or not doing something, I'm going to merit this from God. And therefore... God's hands are tied because it only comes through the righteousness which is in His Son. I would hate to think that there's a soul in this room that thinks if I, I, I must not be praying enough. I must not be fasting enough. It must be something I'm not doing. Or certainly, if we do this, this, and this, God will, will, will merit something. I'm not saying you have to agree with me. I just hate the idea to think that God is in heaven, willingly able and wanting to bestow his gifts and all of his powerful blessings over his people. And they've tied his hands because they come with their own merit and he will have none of it. Because our right standing with God is through His Son and His Son alone. Even the gifts are charismatic, we call them. They're gifts. They're grace. It's grace through faith. We can't merit anything from God. But I think, you know, if I think about my own life, I think there's been times or two I've caught myself thinking, what am I doing? Am I trying to merit something from God on my own righteousness? And realizing that I'm just running around like a dog chasing his tail until, you know, you're just done. But I've got five points. We're going to run through them real quick. I've got three minutes left till 50. Five quick points. The power of God in the gospel never relies on human effort. The power of God in the gospel never relies on human effort. Chapter 4. We have the example of Abraham, don't we? Abraham, the father of faith. Chapter 4, 
verse 1 through 3, it says, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Abraham had nothing in his own human efforts with which to boast before God. Is that what that's saying? I'm retranslating that, I know. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And then he went out and did a lot of good works. And Sarah bore a child because he gave a lot and he fasted a lot and he prayed a lot. Now, he was not as righteous as some of you, maybe. It wasn't based on his human efforts, was it? His status. Where did God call him from? What was he doing at the time with his family? Worshiping idols. You you don't even tell me that God's not loving and gracious. He calls whom he will, and it's all grace. Verse 19 and 25, it says that Abraham was not weak in the faith, and not being, I'm sorry, not being weak in the faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was able to perform. Therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. On Galatians, it tells us the gospel was preached to Abraham beforehand. In other words, Abraham had the gospel before him preached long before it came to pass. And that's what he believed. He saw that all nations of the earth would be blessed through him. Right? Is that what he believed? I mean, that's what he was really believing. It wasn't just Sarah's barren, I'm going to believe for a child and I claim it. It was he was believing what God had said about him being the father of all nations. Through him, all nations would be blessed. Who's he talking about that's going to bless all nations? Jesus. So he's he's has to his account, because of what he's believing, in the unseen realm, righteousness. Now, if you have righteousness accounted to your account, what do you have before God? I mean, if you're justified by faith, if you're just before God, or you have a righteousness imputed to you, as Abraham did, what do you have? You have a right standing with God. Not based on what you did. Correct? I know this is basic stuff, but I think it's good to hear. Because these are those unseen things that sometimes I think get lost in the daily life, in daily life of hardship and trials and difficulties and business and family and all these things. And we tend to think because we don't feel like we're the righteousness of God in Christ. We don't necessarily look at those by faith and say boldly, I am the righteousness of God through Christ. It's Christ's standing with God that now gives me a right standing with him. Now, if I can face life like that, it becomes a little different, doesn't it? I'm the only one that maybe even thinks these things. I don't know. 
So how do you... What, what in saying all that then, in your daily life, what's, what, what do you tally up in your mind as how you are righteous before God? And I'm only asking this because I think it's a valid question. Because I think it's really easy to start thinking that, like I said earlier, our righteousness sometimes gets based on our merit. Our right standing with God is based on our efforts and our merit. And if you have that kind of a mindset, guess what? You go to, you go through life kind of beat down all the time because you're thinking, uh, who do you think you are? Who do we think we are if we do that when Jesus paid such a high price and God poured out his wrath on him? And spared him not, so that we could now have a right standing before God. Who do we think we are if we ever think we merit anything from God? But that's one of those unseen things that we should be able to see by faith. And bring it into our lives and realize it. And live like that. David even said in Psalm 23 in verses 6 and 8, they're quoting Psalm, or Psalm 23 that David wrote. It says, God, uh, well, ahead of myself, in 4, 6 and 8, David said this. He says, and I know this is Brother Tom's favorite psalm, but verse 6, it says, Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. We stand because of what Jesus Christ did. We stand just and righteous in God's sight. And only because of what Jesus Christ did. It's His righteousness that we now benefit from. It's His righteousness. As it says of Abraham, it says also of us, is imputed to your account. You don't need to come to God unless you're living in sin and you need to deal with something. You don't need to come to God with some kind of pitiful attitude that I just don't, I don't, I didn't do enough today. Look outside yourself. I mean, look to the unseen and see what Jesus has done. Remind yourself of what He did. And know that that is your right standing before your Father. Believe me, if you think on that long enough, you don't go about your life sinning anymore. You understand what's been done for you and you live a righteous, holy life. Second point. And I'm five minutes over already. The power of God in the gospel destroys the animosity that existed between you and God. If the wrath of God was pouring out against all unrighteousness to those who are not and unable to be righteous of their own efforts... That's where we were. We were at odds with God. 
Can you say that? Maybe you never saw yourself at odds with God. I, I don't know that I ever did. I came to realize that I was. I knew I was a sinner, but to think that I'm an enemy, I, you know, wasn't that bad, was I? But he says in chapter 5, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When we think of peace, it's the absence of hostility. It's that restoration of friendship. It's quietness. Maybe you never saw yourself at odds with God. Maybe there's some here that still think they're good enough, that they're not at odds with God. Maybe you need to hear the message. Because to have peace with God comes through being justified. Isn't that what he says? Therefore, being justified by faith, we now have peace with God. But the most interesting couple verses that I like in chapter 5 is verse 8 and 9 and 10. He goes on to say, But God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How many times have we heard that? Uh, multiple times, right? You probably used it witnessing to somebody. God demonstrated His love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What kind of love is that? That's a great love. It says we were still sinners when Christ died for us. But he goes on to say in 9, much more than. If, if God was willing to demonstrate his love and give his son while you were a sinner, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We see that phrase in there, much more. It's a phrase that means from major to minor. If God took care of the most difficult thing, which was sacrifice his son on behalf of you and I as sinners, how much more? How much more? Is he willing to save us from his wrath? Now that we're justified. He goes on and says in verse nine or 10, he says, If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, again, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. If we think about that phrase much more and we contrast it with what was done for us while we were sinners and enemies. If what was done for us while we were sinners and enemies, how much more will he do for us now that we are justified in his sight? It's much more. If we were reconciled to him by the death of his son in the frailty of his, his humanity, when Jesus came and took on the likeness of sinful flesh, much more now that he lives and reigns in power 
and is able to save to the uttermost, how is he not much more willing to do that for us who are justified? Third point, the power of God and the gospel emancipates us from the slavery to sin. Maybe there's someone in here who has something in their life that just doesn't seem to want to budge. They just seem like they're always struggling with something. These are one of these things. We read in chapter 6 here. These are the kind of things that we need to see and receive by faith. We can't just read these and go, yeah, I've read Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, and wow, it's way over my head. So let's just go back to, uh, you know, Psalm 23. And guess what? That'll be over your head too if you look at it long enough. Because it's all over our heads. But Romans chapter 6. You know, the famous... uh, At the end of chapter 5, Paul says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Right? I mean, if we preach grace long enough, if we preach that it's the grace of God that saves us, that... We can be righteous through faith in Him. Why not just go on sinning? I mean, if, if grace will abound to you know greater than your sin, I mean that's that's the question Paul's being asked, right? Well, then why not just go about sin? What difference does it make? Well, he says in two, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or how do you know, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Another faith promise. These are things that have been done for us that we need to see in our hearts because if you want to know that you're dead to sin, you've got to believe it. I mean, you can read it. And then you can go, well, it's just not working for me. I mean, I I can read things in the Bible, but not everything people read in the Bible is working for them. Because they're so busy reading other things and they're not saying, this is what's been done for me. I will take this by faith as much as I'll take anything else by faith. But our faith says... In verse 5, he says, For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And this is something that we know. This is something we ought to know. That our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Is death the termination of a relationship? Death terminates something. I mean, it's the most permanent termination I can think of, is death. If you, by faith, can see and know that you were crucified with Him and your old man was crucified with Him, sin no longer reigns in your life. 
But as long as we struggle and fight and don't understand and why am I and why we're looking in the wrong place, aren't we? Again, we're back to looking at us when we need to see Jesus, what he's done, receive it by faith and think, this is how I'm to reckon myself as dead to sin, but alive to God. By faith. Verse 20, he says, For when we were slaves to sin. I hope there's nobody in here a slave to sin. Because it says we were slaves to sin. When we were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin... And having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. I'll tell you right now, you will not overcome sin in your own human effort. This is the gospel, the power of God unto salvation. Not only is the power there through His Son to make us just and righteous, Not only is the power there to give us peace with God, the power is also there to be set free from sin. This is the power of God in the gospel. Point four, the power of God in the gospel terminates us from the bondage of the law or works for righteousness' sake. Chapter 7, one verse we'll read, four a couple of four, chapter 7, verse 4. It says, Therefore, my brethren, you have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work on our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. We're back to that very fine line between meriting something from God and now we're being told that we're married to another. And it's by the spirit of God that he gives us that enables us to walk in this life and fulfill the law. Can we say that? So is that the power of the gospel? Is that the power of God in the gospel? The giving of His Spirit. Yet how many of us maybe don't even know what it means to walk in the Spirit? It's just terms. Walk in the Spirit. You shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Yeah, I I memorized that one. But to walk in His Spirit means that you're spiritually minded. It's like it's a contrast with walking in the flesh. When you're fleshly minded and you walk according to the flesh, what are you doing? Everything your flesh tells you to do and you just respond to it. But how often do we get up in the morning and we just we're going to walk in the spirit? Not some mystical, weird, cross-eyed, put your shoes on backwards and act weird. I'm talking about being led of his spirit. I mean, if we don't have his spirit, I don't know what we're doing here. It don't make any sense. And if we're not walking in the Spirit, then we're not fulfilling anything. So he gives us his Spirit. He terminates the bondage of works for righteousness' sake by us dying in him. And now we're married to him 
who is righteous. Last point. The power of God in the gospel acquits us from all condemnation. He adopts us and empowers us by his spirit to live not according to the flesh, which leads to death, but according to his spirit, which leads to life everlasting. And we all know these verses in Romans 8. It says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus had made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the spirit, but according to the flesh. Or do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. As those now who have all these years heard the gospel, who read things like we've been adopted, we've been given the spirit of adoption whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. Are these things that we take to heart, are these things that we ponder and look at and see by faith and have a realization in our lives, or are they just nice-sounding theological doctrinal terms? Because when these things become real to us by faith, this is how we live the Christian life. You're not forcing your life down the road. You're living it by the life that's in you, which is the only way to live it. The last thing I'd want to be involved in is a church where it becomes a whole bunch of nice, a whole bunch of nice, righteous, religious rules. And if we wear our hair like this and dress just like this and we don't do this and we don't do that, that becomes my righteousness. I don't want that. I really don't. I want the life of God to be what lives out of us. So if we walk by faith and not by sight, which is what we're supposed to be doing, right? All those unseen things that are not seen, are those the things that are as real to you as the things you do see? Is is your justification, your righteousness, your peace with God, your adoption, your being filled with His Spirit, are those all the things that you see by faith and therefore it controls how you live? Or are you just trying to be something? You're trying to be a better Christian. I've heard that so many times, not in here, but talking to people. Hey, I know I need a better better Christian. What does that mean? I need to be a better Christian. So in other words, you need to do more stuff to merit God's... I mean, that's really what I'm asking them. I'm asking them then, are you... You're trying to do more as a, you're trying to be a better Christian. How about you just be one? (laughs) Quit trying to be a Christian. Receive by faith all the things that the gospel offers, including these things. See them by faith and live like this. It's not that difficult. It's just not always seen by people.
So if it's the gospel, if the gospel is the power of God to save us, not from the first, not just from the first day we were saved, it needs to still be trusted in. All that the gospel says, it needs to be trusted every day as that which brings us to our final salvation. So we can all get saved one day. That done, we, you know, we're, we're saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved. I mean, it's a, it's a life lived trusting Him. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for... Uh, we thank You that we have all that we have through what You've done through Your Son. We thank You for the righteousness that You've imputed to us. We thank You that we are now just before You. We thank you that as we yield ourselves and walk according to your spirit, we will always do right things. Father, I ask that your word would just bless these people, that our eyes would be open to things that maybe we need to see. We just thank you for your great love, which you demonstrated to us by giving us your son. We dismiss ourselves now. We ask for your blessing on us this week. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. Stand to your feet. And you are dismissed.